Would you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3? If you haven't brought a Bible with you, there is a Bible in front of you in the pew. It's that page 984 is where, where you will find this morning's sermon text. Page 984. So we're reading from Colossians chapter 3. The chapter is the big number there in the Bible and the little tiny numbers there above the sentences. No other book is written this way. But the tiny numbers there tell you what verses we're on. So we're going to read verses 1 through 10 together as a church. And we're going to stand together because God's word is what is honored in this church. Because Jesus Christ through the Spirit speaks through his word. So let's stand, church. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Fathers, we read your word this morning and see these these truths that no man could invent. We know that we need your help to understand them. This is not our wisdom. This is your wisdom. And we know that we can only receive your wisdom when we have your spirit. And so, would you let your spirit be alive in us in such a way that we hear and we understand and we're changed by your word. Father, silence all distractions in our hearts this morning. Silence the objections that we may have to a holy God who is just and righteous and jealous. Let us see you clearly for who you are in our Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there exists in, in this world a, what we call a works righteousness pendulum. You know what a pendulum is? It's a swing. It goes back and forth. It's a, it's a massive swing. And all of the world's religions play on this swing set. Uh, on one end of the swing is what we call legalism. And we talked about that last week. It's the idea that our acceptance before God is influenced by our own efforts. Even though we sing nothing in my hands I bring. 
This is still in us. It's the idea that our acceptance before God is influenced by our efforts, that, that salvation comes from our works. And many people strive and strive and strive and then come to the realization that they cannot gain acceptance before God by their own effort. And so what is in our tendency to do then? Well, we give up. We just quit trying. And, and then we swing to the other side of the pendulum, the same swing set, and we live in what is called license. It's not the opposite of legalism. It's legalism's little brother. License is disregarding holiness entirely. Assuming that because it isn't our striving that brings us into holiness, it's not our striving, then, then holy must, holiness must not be important at all to God. It's, it's a reaction against legalism. The idea that we are made more holy by rulemaking, and we go to the opposite end of the spectrum and say, well, if I can't do it on my own, then I must not need to be changed at all. God accepts me for who I am, so I'm just going to stay who I am. Friends, both of those are a distortion of biblical Christianity. See, Christianity is not about our works making us holy, and it's certainly not a total disregard for our holiness altogether. God doesn't accept you because of your good works. And listen, he doesn't accept you for who you are. Sounds shocking, doesn't it? He accepts Christ for who he is. And by grace, even with us the way that we are, God accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Our acceptance before God then is not in who we are or who we're trying to be. It's Christ himself. It's all Christ. Holiness, righteousness, completeness before God is found only in Christ Jesus. And here's the thing we, we have to understand as God's people. When we're in Christ, though we are absolutely and totally justified before God, because when he sees us, he sees Christ, we are all the way, we're 100% accepted. We're 100% made right before God. That's true. Praise God. But if that has truly happened, then our lives will grow to reflect that truth. Our lives will become more holy. So if you're in Christ, you are growing in Christ, and he will become more visible in you. You will begin to bear the fruit of the holiness that comes from being rooted in Christ. See, being in Christ, our only claim to righteousness, righteousness, that bears the fruit of holiness in our lives. His acceptance before God is transferred to us by our relationship to him. We have that. We have that right now, Christian. It's called justification. And God's making that available to you if you're not in Christ right now. He makes that available to you in Christ Jesus. 
his holiness before God, Christ's holiness before God, perfect righteous holiness, that same holiness grows in us as we're connected to Christ. That's what we call sanctification. So you have justification, we're right before God, and then sanctification, that growth in holiness that comes from Christ. Okay? So those are two things that we need to understand. And here's what the legalist fails to understand. That holiness, that doesn't come from us. It comes from Christ. It comes from our connection to Christ. It's a holiness by grace. In the same way that our salvation is by God's grace alone, so is that holiness, that sanctification that God is working in us. That also comes from God's grace. So in our passage this morning, Paul explains to us what this looks like. If it's not by me following the rules that I become more holy, if it is not by my dis regard for rules altogether that I receive holiness, how is it? How do we become more holy? Because it is happening if we're in Christ. Well, here it is. Look at verses 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So in other words, to begin to reflect Christ's holiness, we have to be looking to Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. It rhymes, but it's true. The way to live a life in Christ, the way to, to walk in Christ, as Paul told us in chapter 2 a few weeks ago, remember that's what this whole letter is about, walking in Christ. The way to do that is to dwell more and more on the fact that you're already in Christ. If your mind is constantly dwelling on Christ as he has been revealed in Scripture, if your thoughts are controlled by all that you are in being unified to him, all that you've been given in Christ, if Christ is where your thoughts are going, then your life will follow. That's where holiness comes from, from him. So how do we do this then? Well, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself of what happened on the cross when Christ died and canceled the record of debt that stood against you. That's freeing. Remind yourself that when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ. And so by the grace of God, you don't live anymore. It's Christ who lives in you. Remind yourself that your very life, all that you are, is hidden with Christ in God. So, Because if your holiness, if your holiness is all bound up in Christ, then we look to Christ to provide that holiness in us, to, to make us holy. 
Do you want the key to the Christian life? Do you? This is it. Gerhard Voss, old American theologian, he said, the entire Christian life, root and stem and branch and blossom, so from the roots all the way to the flowers, the, the entire life is one continuous fellowship with Christ. That's what it is. You, you died with Christ. You were raised with Christ. You are in Christ now. And you will realize that fully when you appear with Christ when he returns. Your past and your present and your future, it's all it's all bound up in Christ himself. And your growth in him is just returning to that truth. It's just knowing that and living that out. I know what you might be thinking this. Dustin, that, that can't be enough. There's no way that just that truth is enough. I just want to know how to be a better person. Tell me how to manage my finances. Tell me how to save my marriage. Tell me how to be happy in my singleness when I feel lonely. Tell me how not to eat so much or drink so much or how not to cuss so much or to be bitter or anxious or depressed. Tell me how to fix these things. Tell me how to fix the relationships that I have with my mom and my dad and my, my kids. Tell me how to be a better parent. Tell me how to be a better student. Tell me how to be a better boss or a better employee. Tell me how to even be a better evangelist. Friend, listen, none of those things is Christianity. Christianity is not the good life. It isn't having it all together and presenting yourself as a perfect Christian. Listen, Christianity is Christ himself. Look to Christ. Set your mind on your heavenly dwelling, the present heavenly dwelling, where you are already perfected in Christ. And when you do that, guess what happens? All of those other areas in your life that are not bringing glory to Christ, they become more obvious to you. You begin to see them not as things that need to be fixed, but things that need to be arranged around Christ and re-centered on Christ himself. You know why? Because as you revel in Christ himself and his work for you that's already been accomplished, you begin to realize that at the core of all of those things that are wrong with your life, there's this simple truth. All of those areas aren't wrong because they don't meet some ideal that you've come up, up with, something that you've made up. They're wrong because they show where Jesus himself has not been enough for you. It's not your circumstances that need to change. It's you. It's me. And you know what? By the grace of God, the Spirit is changing us. And we participate with him in that. The Spirit is going to reveal to you areas in your heart where your desires are not for Christ. Where, where your satisfaction isn't Christ himself and what he has given you. 
And when the Spirit reveals that to you, what are we supposed to do? What do we do then as the unholy areas of our lives become more evident to us? What do we do when the Spirit, through His Word, brings those things to light? Do we just let go and let God? No. (laughs) That's not in the Bible. Okay? Let me show you what Paul says we're supposed to do. It is actually very different than just letting go and letting God. Look at verse 5. What does Paul say? Put to death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put the sin that dwells in you to death. Because you can. Sin doesn't rule over you anymore like it used to before you were brought into Christ. Sin's enslaving power has been nailed to the cross. Amen? Amen. So you now, by the Spirit, because of what's happened for you, you have the power to put that sin to death. It has lost its teeth. So do it. Don't tolerate it. Sin has no place in your life now. So don't try to manage it. Say, I've got this under control. Don't try to minimize it. Don't try to hide it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't try to tame it. For Christ's sake, kill it. Put it to death. The old Puritan, John Owen, you heard this name before? He says, kill it or it will kill you. Your sin does not characterize you anymore, Christian. It's not who you are anymore. And the only way to ensure that that's true, the only way to have the assurance that Christ offers us is to put our sin to death. Remember a few years ago at SeaWorld Orlando when Tillicum, the orca whale, killed his trainer. Do you remember that? 2010, I think. They were doing this dinner show and hundreds of people, hundreds of people are there in the arena and they're watching these whales do tricks well, while the people eat their meals. And the trainer is there at the edge of the tank. He's patting the head of, of old Tillicum, a beast who we commonly call killer whale. An animal that can destroy a great white shark. And as the trainer is patting this wild animal, Tillicum, and, and Tillicum's name means friend in Chinook. And Tillicum leaps up out of the water, grabs the trainer by the arm, pulls her in, tosses her up, crushes her between his, his monstrous jaws, and shakes her vigorously until, she's die, until she dies. And all the people are watching. And they're all horrified that this wild animal actually did what is in its very nature to do. And if that weren't enough, come to find out, we later learned Tillicum had done this two times before. Twice before. This 12,000 pound bull orca has killed people. And yet people continue to call him friend. And pat him on the head and pretend that they can tame this wild beast. Christian, we cannot tame our sin. We cannot ignore it and just hope it goes away. Its aim, its nature is to destroy us. 
kill it or it kills you. It doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it Tilikum, friend. It's not your friend. You, you can call it something you were born with. You can call it a habit. You can say it's something you have no control over, and so you're not responsible for it. You can call it a disease. You can say you do have it under control. You can minimize it in, in whatever ways that, that psychologists and pop culture and your mama want to do, but it's still indwelling sin. It's still a monster that dwells within you, and it's got to be put to death. What is earthly in you? What comes from your earthly nature? Its very purpose is to devour you, to blind you to the things that are above to blind you to who we really are in Christ. It is the nature of sin to force our gaze not on the things that are in heaven where Christ is seated, but to the things of earth, downward. And to keep us focused on the things of the earth, to keep us focused on the ways that we think that we're lacking, the ways that things could be better. And then sin shows us all the ways where the world can provide for those things that are lacking in us. Its very nature is to convince you of this lie, that Christ himself is not enough for you. And the world has loads of ways to convince you of that. Many, many ways. See, while our justification in Christ is passive, our sanctification, our becoming more like Christ, our becoming more holy from the grace that Christ provides, that's an active work. And it requires of us putting to death the sin that dwells within us. I'm not going to try to name all of the sins that are in us. You know what they are. And Paul doesn't take this lightly. He goes on in verse 5 to show us the ways that sin tempts us to believe that Christ isn't enough. And don't think that these examples that Paul gives are an exhaustive list. Okay, these are not all of the ways that we can be drawn away from our identity in Christ. What you see here in this list in verse 5 are just broad categories. And really, there's only two of them. The first ones in verse 5, they have to do with our inner desires. And then later on in verse 8, He's going to show us how sin affects our relationships. Think about that first set that we see in verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, or some of your Bibles say greed, which is idolatry. All of those, think about it, all of those have, have something to do with a dissatisfaction with what God has provided for us. They all have to do with things we want, don't they? Sexual immorality, that's that broad term from, that, that describes all sexual activity outside of what God has created sex for. God designed sex to be the physical expression of the one flesh union that is realized only in marriage. So when Paul says put to death sexual immorality, he means put to death all of the ways 
that are outside of that. All of the ways that we seek selfishly to gratify our own flesh. All the ways that we seek sexual satisfaction outside of what God has provided for us. For those of us who are in Christ, we know this by now, all of our satisfaction comes from being in Christ. It comes from enjoying the good things that he's given us, recognizing that all we have that is good comes from him. So if you're a Christian and you're not married, so if you're single or you're widowed or you're young, God has given you all that you need. Listen, all that you need to be satisfied in Christ Jesus. And sex is not a part of that. So don't begin to think by looking at the world that you are lesser or that you can't be fulfilled and be single at the same time. That's a lie. You know why? Because you have Jesus Christ. You are more complete in Christ than a married person is complete with their spouse. Do you believe that, single people? It's true. You are more complete in Christ than a married person is complete with their spouse. You are fulfilled in Christ and you can be satisfied in him. 100%. And Christian, if you are married, God has given you all that you need to be satisfied in Christ Jesus. All the ways, the the way that you love and care for your spouse should self-sacrificially show that your completeness is first in Christ. You don't have to need to be needy. You have Jesus Christ. And so you can give abundantly to your spouse. The old self is all about self-promotion. Okay? It's all about giving in to every single craving it has. You know why? Because the old self is its own God. The old self thinks this way. It's how the old self thinks. This looks good to me. This feels good to me. This is good for me. I deserve this. I've earned this. I've worked for this. The focus is entirely on pleasing the self. And that disposition... The way of thinking is, is the root of what Paul talks about next, the impurity, the passion, the evil desires we see in verse 5. Each of these are internal desires that are rooted in the old selfish, self-worshipping self. When you begin to think like Adam and Eve, when you see that something that is outside of what God has provided for you to satisfy you, when you begin to see those other things as good, that, that they are delight to the eyes, more delightful than what God has provided for you. And that those things are desired to make you who you want to be. Then you give in to those desires and you act on sin. And those impure, passionate, evil desires, they've got to be put to death. Because they're so strong. 
when you recognize those coming up in your thoughts and your mind and your heart, you know that they are so strong that they can sway you away from being satisfied in Christ. So put them to death. Notice also how Paul links sexual immorality and these desires that lead to it with what he calls covetousness. We don't use that word very often unless we're reading the Ten Commandments. Greed might make more sense to you. He does that because both sexual immorality and covetousness or or greed have to do with self-worship. This idea that, that I deserve, I deserve because of who I am to be gratified physically. And I deserve to accumulate wealth and possessions to show my greatness. What does Paul call that? Look at the end of verse 5. He says, that's idolatry. That's false worship. How is this idolatry? How, How is just wanting stuff idolatry? What he doesn't mean is that your desire for bigger and bigger TVs means that you worship TVs. Your your desire for a bigger house or a faster car or a more comfortable car or, or even something as little as a new cell phone doesn't mean that because you desire those things, you worship those things. What he means is this. Your, our, our desires for stuff are rooted in this idea that who we are in Christ isn't enough. So we want to make ourselves out to be more. And we say we deserve more than what and who we are in Christ. And we believe that getting stuff will make us more complete and it will make us greater. What's happening with, with greed or covetousness is that we're going outside of our identity in Christ to look for fulfillment or completeness. So follow the logic. If what we have in Christ is fellowship with God himself, the one true God, then going outside of that for completeness is to say there is another greater God than you. There's another God who's greater than Christ himself. Friends, that is the very definition of idolatry, isn't it? And that way of thinking, that way of living, it's got to be put to death. So let's let's be practical for a moment, as if that were not practical enough. What does this look like in my life as a Christian? Let's think of a real-world scenario. I'm going to do a thought experiment with you. Think about, and I don't know you all, so I'm just going to ask you to think about any given situation where you are tempted to be dissatisfied with Christ. Think of the ways where you've recently thought, if only I had that, then I'd be more complete, or things would be better. If only I could go on that trip, then I would be more complete. My experience of the divine would be greater. If only I had a different job, or if if only I could be with him, or with her, or with this computer screen, then I could feel more pleasure, and then, then I could be more complete than who I am right now in Christ. If only. 
whenever, whenever you have a deep desire like that for something or for someone else, you need to pause and you need to simply ask, why? Why do I want this? Is it, is it because my union with Christ isn't enough or the life that he's calling me to live in him isn't enough? If the answer is yes, then friends, you know what to do now. Put whatever that strong desire is to death before it bears fruit and becomes a sin that is much more difficult to kill in your life. Put it to death by returning to your completeness in who Christ is in you. Christian, together we belong to Christ. This is our new reality. So we put off all of those ways that we were living for ourselves, that we were living for our own glory. We put off all of the ways that we wanted other people to pay attention to us. We put off all of the ways and things that were self-promoting and self-seeking. Why? Why is this such a big deal? Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. I don't, need to have to, I, I don't have to say that loud, do I? That word, it's loud enough. To worship, to worship yourself is to deny that God is the only one worthy of worship. It's to make yourself out to be God. And the one true God who's perfect in his holiness and in his righteousness and in his greatness, he will not tolerate anything of that nature. Only God is deserving of worship. And when he's not worshipped rightly, his wrath is poured out on the offender. Verse 7 says, that was us. You recognize that, Christian? Before you were brought into Christ, that's what you lived under. God's wrath. That's where we were. We were the offender. That is the life we were walking in. That's the life we were living in. Marching around our own little thrones and huffing and puffing and saying, Worship me, worship me, give me all that I deserve. That's what the self says. That's what the flesh says. And God, in his perfect holiness and his perfect justice, knows this, that the only thing that we in our rebellion deserve is his wrath. For some of you, I I know that bothers you. That's why I prayed at the beginning that that when when you hear that and you, you begin to harden to that reality of who God is, I pray that that would be softened. It bothers you. It it doesn't settle well to hear about God's wrath. And I get it. That's not a popular message. So I want to tell you a story. See, I'm going to go back to the, the very beginning. God created you to reflect his glory. That's why he created humanity 
to reflect his glory, to show his reign over all of creation. That's the reason why he created us. It wasn't because he was lonely. The Father, Son, and Spirit are in perfect community with one another. He lovingly created us to bear his image and to participate in the spread of his glory. In Genesis 1.27, back at the beginning of the Bible, God created man in his own image, is what Moses tells us. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. See, humanity was supposed to take God's image that they'd been imprinted with and spread it throughout the entire earth. We were to be God's representatives to all of creation, his ambassadors, spreading his rule everywhere. But because of the sin of Adam and Eve, who craved, they desired equality with God, rather than being satisfied with who God had made them to be, his image bearers, because of that failure, our nature was forever corrupted. And we inherited this evil desire to not promote God's glory, but to promote our own glory. Fast forward thousands of years from that fateful day in the garden. And at the appointed time, Ephesians 1 tell us, tells us, according to the eternal plan of God, what happens? The Son of God comes. And Philippians tells us the Son of God didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped like Adam did. That wasn't the Son's desire. Instead, he humbles himself and takes the form of a servant. He's born in the likeness of man. And yet it's still true that he is the image of the invisible God. The radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews tells us. And the exact imprint of his nature. He's a new and better Adam. And then what did he do? Well, in his life, he perfectly radiated the glory of God in all that he did in service to God. He lived for the glory of God alone, not himself. He lived and taught all about spreading the reign of God. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as we see in Matthew. Jesus was the perfect human that Adam had been created to be. Jesus succeeded where Adam and all the rest of us failed. And he died to take upon himself the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserved for spreading our own glory for representing an enemy kingdom, for being ambassadors to an enemy kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And when by the grace of God, when we're we're brought into Christ, we begin to bear the image of Christ who perfectly bore the image of God. Skip down with me if you're in Colossians still. Look at verses 9 and 10. 
Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And now look what Paul says. This is where all of Christianity begins to make sense for us. Verse 10, And you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's an echo for us. We should hear that and think back to Genesis 1 and say something new has begun in Christ. Do you see that? The old self is the idolatrous self, the one where we make ourselves out to be gods. And the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, where we, by the power of the Spirit working in us, we show and proclaim that God is God, not us. That's Christianity. Christianity is not about living the good life. It's not about being healthy or wealthy. It's not about being a better person or a smarter person. It's about believing that, it's it's not about even believing that God exists or believing that Jesus exists. See, even demons believe that. That's not Christianity. At its very core, Christianity is about spreading God's reign over all of creation. And the only way we can do that while we live in these these sin-bedraggled, messy, fleshly, earthy bodies is by living in Christ. Walking in Christ. We have to see that we are in Christ who is seated at the right hand of God It means he's reigning over his kingdom, and we're in him. So we are having dominion over all the kingdom by imaging the glory of Christ. Do you see that? It comes full circle. And Paul's exhortation for us is that we constantly have to check ourselves and be watchful against this earthliness that still haunts us. He says, put it all away. Look at verse 8. But now you must put them all away. And he gives us more examples of these things that marked our old earthy lives. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Put it all away. Why do you think he focuses on these attitudes? Think about it. What is anger? It's it's taking offense. It's reacting emotionally when things aren't going our way what is wrath it's acting out pouring out our vengeance when we don't get our way wrath is levying out our own justice taking God's place as judge what is malice malice is is the attitude we have towards others that says I don't like that person I don't like her. She won't bend to my will. In other words, she doesn't worship me the way she should. What are slander and obscene talk? Saying things about others that put them down. And we do that presuming that when someone else looks smaller, we look bigger, we look greater. When they look lesser, we are magnified. All of those attitudes They're just self-promotion, aren't they? 
They are the attitudes of the old self. And I see these in myself way too often. And I see these attitudes in the eyes and in the frown lines of Christians way too often. We still carry in us a selfish, defensive pride whose only aim is self-promotion. In our anger, our wrath, our malice, our slander, and all our put-downs, they prove it. They prove that that's still with us. You say, oh, that's not me. Look at your Facebook feed. (laughs) Out of the heart, the Facebook speaks. Think about the ways that we react when someone doesn't like our politics. Or when someone doesn't like our opinions. Think about the hateful ways we talk about others when we feel like they're not bowing to our perception of ourselves. Think about what makes you angrier than anything else. I bet it's not Jesus Christ isn't being glorified. What is it? Whatever it is, put it away. Put it all away. So I'm not going to make a rule for you because of legalism. But if putting anger and wrath and malice and slander away means deleting your social media accounts, do it. It is so worth it. Better to cut off your hand, amen, if it causes you to sin. Put it away. And that includes lying. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, Paul points to what I consider the number one way that we promote ourselves before others. Lying. And so what is his encouragement for us? He just says this. Do not lie to one another. Do we need it any more explicit than that? Do not lie to one another. See, lying is a self-defense mechanism. It is, it's self-guarding. It's protecting an image of ourselves that we want to promote because we want others to think more highly of us. So when Paul says, do not lie to one another, who who is the one another? What have we been learning on Wednesday night? He's talking about the church. In the church, among the membership, those who belong to one another in Christ, who are submitting to one another for for our discipleship, for our encouragement. We are to be honest with one another. Why? Because, because, because in the church, we remember and we remind ourselves, one another, we remind one another that we don't represent ourselves. We represent Jesus Christ. So, So we don't have to lie about ourselves here. There's no need to. We already know that we're not worthy before God. We don't have to pretend that we are. That's all lying is. Jesus Christ is the only one worthy before God. And in Christ, we receive his worthiness. So we don't have to lie. We can proclaim that truth. And we can just be honest. And we can be transparent with one another and promote Jesus Christ. We can do this because of what we know to be true. Look at the rest of verse 9. Look at this truth. You have 
You have. Past tense. You have. It's already happened. You have put off the old self with its practices. It's already happened, Christian. When you died with Christ, you did put off. It happened. You put off the old self. So you don't have to strive to make yourself great anymore because you're already dead. You don't exist. You are in Christ. And you'll see that glory that you want in Christ when he returns. That's when you receive it. That's when that realization of who you are in union with Christ becomes self-evident. So our striving now in this life is to make him great. Verse tense, you have it again, another past tense statement. When you read and study your Bibles, do you notice the tense of the statements? Because if something has happened, that means it's true, okay? You have something that's already happened. If you're in Christ, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Being renewed in knowledge means this goes back to verse 1. It means that your mind is set, where knowledge is in your mind, your mind is set on things above. You're seeking Christ. And through seeking Christ, here's the ways that we, that we do that. We read his word. That's how we grow in the knowledge of him. That's how his word speaks to us through the Spirit. We seek to grow in the knowledge of who he is. We worship with his people. We long to hear him proclaimed. We're starving to hear him proclaimed because we love him. We, we long to receive him together in communion. We look forward to sharing the bread and the cup together. We pray his will to be done in our lives. Those are all the ways that we seek him. And through all of these means that God's renewing Grace is poured out on us Sunday after Sunday, day after day when we look to him. These are the ways that we are being made new. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit works through these means of grace to continue the work of making us new. And all of that work is finally completed when Jesus Christ returns. Christian, when Jesus died for us, if you're here and you're not a Christian, Jesus died for you. So when he died for you, when he absorbed in himself God's righteous wrath toward us because of our rebellion, and when we were, rab when we were baptized into Christ's death, here's what we need to see. We not only received acceptance before God, we didn't just receive the righteousness and holiness that he provides then. We continue to grow in and receive his holiness in our lives now. When we sang this morning, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure. We're just singing that truth. That's why I said that the song preached for us this morning. So here's why I leave this morning. Be satisfied in Christ because Christian, listen, 
you really are complete in Christ. So live like that's true. Amen. Would you pray with me?